0: After a two-week break, we're continuing our sermon series on the the gospel according to Matthew today, and I've been really encouraged as I've been studying Matthew chapter 20 this past week, even though I could see that Jesus' disciples were portrayed in some rather unflattering ways in chapter 20, ways in which many of us, unfortunately, might find ourselves um, a little too able to relate to. Uh, But what encouraged me was how Jesus responded to his disciples in such incredibly generous and loving ways because that assured me that that's how he'll respond to us as his present-day disciples, even when our choices or behaviors aren't very flattering. There's a person in our midst, Rick Capani, that some of you may know. Rick has been coming here many years, and... uh, Uh, I have permission to share this story about Rick. Many years ago, Rick began a new job working for a self-employed painter named Steve. Um, Some of you may know Steve Wolford. Steve Wolford used to attend here. Now he lives in Wales in the UK. Um, But Rick had been suddenly and unexpectedly let go from his previous job. And Steve took him under his wing as an inexperienced rookie painter. And he began training Rick. And on the first day they were painting, they were painting the exterior of a doctor's office. And Rick was up a, about a 40-foot ladder uh, with a, a gallon of oil-based primer. That's important to remember in this story. And as he was up that ladder near the top, that can slipped out of his hand. And it fell down to a brand new deck that had just been built and stained for this doctor's office, and it splattered four luxury cars that belonged to the doctors inside the office. You can all comfort Rick about this after the service. Rick came scrambling down the ladder as fast as he could go, so fast in fact that at about a, when he was about a six or seven feet off the ground, he fell off the ladder, landed sideways on the railing of the deck, hurting his side, and as he was wincing in pain on the deck, Steve came strolling around the corner and saw what had happened. And he immediately ran to his truck, and he grabbed a couple of containers of pro- um paint thinner and, and some rags, and he came running back and he threw one of the containers at Rick and the rags, and he said, go, 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 and they started pouring paint thinner over these luxury cars and, and wiping the paint off, and uh, I mean, you, you can imagine the scene, and uh, they spent about two or three hours getting every drop of paint off these luxury cars, and of course, the deck was shot. The, the, there was no recovering the deck. The, paint, the, the oil-based primer had soaked in, and oh, what that was Rick's first day on the job. <laughs> well, Steve came over to Rick when it was all done, and they realized there's nothing they could do about the deck, and the, he put his arm around Rick, and Rick's bracing himself. He's been dismissed from his last job. He's expecting to be dismissed again, and Steve says, well, can you be here tomorrow at (laughs) 7? Wow. Now, I realize that what Rick didn't do wasn't a sin, but it was a huge blunder, and it wouldn't have been out of the question for Steve to have fired Rick that day. But Steve's response was very much like how God responds to us when we fail or make mistakes or when we sin. And my hope today is that anyone here who feels like they deserve to be fired or they even deserve just simply to be demoted by God would see that God's response to our blunderings and to our sin is not what we might expect. So let's begin reading. I'm going to begin reading actually in chapter 19 of the book of Matthew, near the very end of chapter 19. And this passage begins with Matthew highlighting... The disciples' response to when that rich man that had been talking to Jesus, uh, how when he walked away, because he was more attached to his riches and to his lifestyle than to Jesus. So he walked away and talks about the disciples' response to that. Chapter 19, verse 27. Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those who had I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the richness of your word, for, for the lessons, so many lessons to be learned from your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we look into this chapter, Lord, you would show us things uh, that will be helpful to us, that will help us to grow, help us to uh, become more like Jesus, because that's what you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing we might notice in this passage is not necessarily the love of Jesus, but more likely the reality of how flawed these disciples were, and I dare say how much we are like them in our own self-interest and self-concern that we may express from time to time. The twelve disciples were men who had the enormous privilege of spending a great deal of time with, with, with Jesus over a period of about three years. Am I the only one who stares at these stories of Jesus' disciples during Jesus' ministry years and wonders, what was wrong with these guys? Like, think of it. They spent day after day with Jesus, walking with him, talking with him, being with him, watching and listening as he performed miracles and as he taught the multitudes. They were able to continually be with Jesus for three years. Don't you think that would mean they'd have a better shot at really growing in wisdom and character compared to us who simply take a little time each day to pray and to read parts of the Bible? Well, the truth is, we actually do have a better shot because we have God's Spirit living in us. And, well, those disciples didn't yet have the Spirit living in them, and, and Jesus knew that. But anyway, so those 12 disciples kept bickering among themselves about who was the greatest in fact just a couple chapters ago in matthew 18 right after three of the disciples had come down from the mountain where jesus had been glorified they approached jesus to ask him so so who then is the greatest in god's kingdom jesus showed them that those who turn and get low like a child are the greatest Well, then very soon after that, as the disciples traveled toward Jerusalem, Matthew describes the disciples as hindering children from coming to Jesus, only to be rebuked by Jesus as he says, Let the children come. Jesus had to remind them that to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Then very soon after that, as they got closer to Jerusalem, Matthew describes James and John approaching Jesus with their mother, as we just read, so that she could ask Jesus... For her sons to have the best seats in the kingdom one at jesus's right hand one at his left and once again jesus had to explain greatness in the kingdom means getting low this time he said like a servant then if that wasn't enough if we skip ahead a little we find in luke chapter 22 verse 24 right after the disciples' last supper with with Jesus, after Jesus had just shared the bread and the wine, emblems of his death, and after just saying that one of them was going to betray him, an emotional scene, a dispute broke out among the disciples about who among them was the greatest. They were fighting at the Lord's table. What does it take for these disciples to get it? Will they never get over themselves and their egos? And then suddenly, as I think such thoughts, I see a mirror in front of my face. (laughs) How many issues in my life has God had to remind me of again and again and again and again and again? And just one of those issues being the very same pride and self-interest that these 12 disciples struggled with. I'm no different. I can be so focused on myself and on what people think of me and on whether or not people agree with me, what people think of my opinions. I can be so focused on, on my own ego, my own sensitivities. Maybe you can identify. Does pride and ego and self-interest Persist in your life. Maybe it happens at work. Maybe it comes up in school. Maybe it, it happens at home with your family. Or self-interest will poke its head up. Or maybe it happens at church. Self-interest and pride were apparent in Peter when he said, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? In the ancient Greek, those words we were written in the emphatic. That's like the ancient Greek way of clicking on italics, bold, underline. It was emphasized. And Jesus' response to Peter is two pronged. He said he extended extravagant generosity to the disciples. That was the first thing. Despite their obvious pride, he's extending extravagant generosity. And he brought a gentle adjustment. To the disciples regarding their behavior and their perspectives and we're going to look at those two things this morning god's extravagant generosity is expressed here in the form of a promise just after peter's self-concerned question in which he emphasizes that word we what about we what about us we've sacrificed so much jesus says truly i say to you in the new world when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne You who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, you got that right. Jesus actually used that word you in the emphatic. Just as Peter had brought all the emphasis on himself, Jesus kept the emphasis on Peter and he actually affirmed him. And he actually promised him rewards despite his obvious self-interest and pride. He said, you Who have followed me will get this blessing. What mercy and kindness God shows to us. Now, this is truly an amazing promise that only Matthew includes in the four gospel accounts that we have in the New Testament. Jesus promised that these 12 disciples would actually sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know how this impacts you, but it never ceases to amaze me when I read that verse. I find myself picturing this motley crew of bickering disciples sitting kind of awkwardly in these big regal thrones. You know, in the book of Acts, these men are described as ed- uneducated, common men. You know, you can't picture them being too comfortable in these big regal thrones. Is this what Jesus meant? Well, commentators actually agree that, that this is exactly, most likely, what Jesus meant. So in response to Peter's proud self-interest and proud self-promotion, Jesus graciously promised that, yes, you will be rewarded for your sacrifices. I'm going to reward you generously. In fact, Jesus knew exactly how flawed his 12 disciples were, and yet he promised them something amazing, despite him knowing that they were far more flawed than even these passages reflect and he said i'm still going to reward you with something amazing and jesus knows how flawed we are in this room and how we feel about it and how we want to write ourselves off sometimes and he knows we'll be like this until the day he calls us home but yet he still promises that he wants to use us to accomplish something good in this world he has a purpose for all our lives despite our flaws You know, when I was a young Christian, I mean a really new Christian as a teenager, I loved reading my Bible. When I really started getting excited about the Lord, I was reading my Bible all the time. And I was underlining in it, and I was writing in the margins, and I was so excited. This was all so new to me. Well, as I continued reading, and I'd be sitting in Bible studies when I'd be able to refer to passages that sort of related to what we were talking about, and people would be so impressed, and it started going to my head. I started thinking of myself as uh, fairly learned and I I started becoming quite proud about it and one week I offered to teach a Bible study on Romans 8 in our high school uh, Bible study group that we had it was a pretty good group there's about 15 to 20 people on most um, evenings that we had it we had it weekly and we were all pretty keen and I offered to study on Romans 8 so You know, I turned to Romans 8 in my studies. I I wanted to prepare. And, of course, many of you may know that the the chapter Romans 8 starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I saw the word, therefore, and like a good Bible student, I knew that whenever you see the word, therefore, you have to look back in the text to see what the word, therefore, is therefore. And so I looked back into Romans 7 to see why he was saying, therefore, and as I studied Romans 7, I saw that it started with, or do you not know, brothers? Well, I wanted to know, why did, why did the writer, why did Paul say that? Do you not know what? And, and like, why is he asking that? So I went into Romans 6, and then it, I see in Romans 6, as I was studying that, it starts off with, what shall we say then? Well, why would he say that? Why would he ask that? So I'm in Romans 5 now, and it starts with, therefore? Well, when you see the word therefore, you have to look back to see what it's there for. Right. So there I am in Romans 4, and I study it, and I see that it starts off with, What what, what then shall we say? Well, why is he asking that? Now I'm in Romans 3. (laughs) Before I knew it, I was doing a 30-minute Bible study on Romans 1 to (laughs) 8. Wow. Well, that didn't go so well. It was a complete failure. And I remember as I was teaching it, I really did attempt it. I attempted to teach on eight chapters of Romans in 30 minutes. And um, I could see the eyes of the Bible study leader, like the, the leader of the group. His eyes were getting wider and wider with horror as he realized what I was doing. And it's like suddenly he stopped me. And he said, Well, maybe, maybe we can focus on something here. And, and uh, he tried to salvage the Bible study in front of everybody. Well, that was a humiliating experience for a young adolescent who thought, thought he was really something and who needed humbling. Failure doesn't feel very good, especially when you really think you've got it and then you get adjusted in front of everyone. It, it was embarrassing. And I wondered if I'd ever want to put myself out there again. I, I, I must have been red in the face. But looking back, I know that on that very day, on that exact day, I'm convinced that Jesus still wanted me to be a teacher of his word. The lesson here is don't write yourself off. Even if you've repeatedly blown it because God has not written you off. If you are seeking to follow Jesus, you can be sure that no matter how flawed you feel you are, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And then on top of that promise of the thrones to these 12 flawed disciples, Jesus makes a promise to all his disciples, including us. He says... And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, in other words, whatever you may have given up for my name's sake, you will receive a hundredfold and you will inherit eternal life. See how extravagantly generous Jesus is compared, compared to Peter's calculated self-concern. Such generosity is possible for such flawed followers because God has truly canceled the record of charges against us. It says in Colossians, he, it says He canceled the record of charges against us, taking it away by nailing it to the cross so that we could be totally forgiven. When Jesus, as the Son of God, allowed Himself to be nailed to the cross, our sins were nailed to that cross with Him so that they could never be charged against us again that's what made it possible for jesus to look past peter's flaws and ours and to promise rewards to peter and to us despite peter's and our flaws that's a generous god receive those promises that's the extravagant generosity of Jesus. But then Jesus still makes an adjustment, a gentle adjustment. As well as encouraging that extravagant generosity, as well as being encouraged by it, we must also notice that Jesus adjusts us. Immediately after the promise of um, receiving a hundredfold and eternal life is the word but. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And then Jesus tells a story, a parable, about this landowner who hired different people who worked different amounts of time each day, and he paid them all the same. And of course, the people who worked the whole day were pretty upset about that. They got paid the same as the people who were only working an hour, even though they'd agreed to that price. Of course, Jesus said that the landowner's response represents God's response. It was, am I not allowed to do what I choose with, with Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That's God's heart. Do you not, do you begrudge my extravagant generosity? Jesus was presenting this question to a disciple who had been very concerned about how he was going to be rewarded for all that he'd sacrificed for Jesus. In fact, he was comparing himself to others. He was comparing himself to that rich young ruler who'd walked away. And he said, but what about us? We've made sacrifices. He's not willing, but we've made sacrifices. By placing, and then Jesus told this story, and by placing it between his repetition of the statement, first will be last and the last will be first, Jesus made it clear in his adjustment that God uses a totally Different set of values from the ones that Peter was using for determining who gets affirmed and rewarded. Jesus' values were completely different in determining those things. Peter was all about, Hey, see, look, we've made huge sacrifices to follow you. Look at us. Reward us. We're better than that rich guy who walked away. But Jesus is all about stop making comparisons. Look to your own heart and to the work that you've been given to do. And when you're rewarded, take what you've received and be content. This is an adjustment to Peter. This is because rewards in God's kingdom are not primarily based on what we can see and measure. John Bloom writes, The truth is we rarely know who the real great ones are. Those whose lives prove truly great in God's assessment and bear the longest-lasting fruit generations from now. Who are those people? God's way was to call 12 uneducated and common men and then call them to sit on thrones judging a nation. That's God's way, despite their flaws. And God's way is to call untrained, dedicated volunteers in a little-known church on a windswept prairie to help strangers from nations all over the world teaching them English as they grow in friendship together just to give them a leg up in this country and God's way is to call ordinary unassuming volunteers to faithfully rise early on Saturday after Saturday so that they can provide food for dozens and dozens of families who are struggling to make ends meet And God's way is to call ordinary people of humble means to raise thousands of dollars to buy a van for a family in need and to provide Christmas gifts for widows and orphans overseas and to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for a church plant across the river so that we can bless another part of our city. God's way is for this church to love one another in countless acts of kindness That no one will ever see. And God's way is to call a simple church on the Canadian prairie to impact their city and their province and many nations of the world simply because God prefers to use the weak and the foolish to shame the strong and the wise. Yeah, we're flawed, we're not a perfect church. In fact, I've, I've met people, I, I, in fact, this has happened on numerous occasions, so much so that it's starting to b- bug me, th- that when people are telling me on their first Sunday here the reason they decided to keep coming back was because there was a pastor, you know, it doesn't matter which one, it's been different ones and different stories, standing up at the pulpit and saying sorry for something. Wow! Well, if that's all it takes, I, I, I'll apologize. i apologize. I've got lots to apologize for. But it's just the fact that we're a humble church. We're, I mean, humble in the sense of small and unrecognized, and with lots of flaws, but God wants to use us, just like he wants to use each individual in this church. Let's not forget that God looks to our hearts when looking for reasons to affirm us. Not whether or not we did something huge and amazing or made news headlines. But Jesus shared another really important adjustment when responding to James and John and to the grumbling of the other ten disciples after James and John asked what they asked. And this was the adjustment Jesus brought. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is an adjustment that literally calls us to be last in order that others could be first. When Jesus said, Even as the Son of Man, using Himself as an example, He made Himself the supreme example of servanthood. The kind of servanthood He was calling us to follow. This is a call to lay down our lives to serve others. Which can happen in a million different ways. Are we prepared to be adjusted by the words of Jesus this morning? None of us can claim to have arrived at what he's talking about here. All of us can grow in the area of servanthood. But it's also true that Jesus didn't die simply to be an example so that we'd then make adjustments. Okay, I'm going to die. That's how far I'm going to take servanthood. That's my example. You follow me now. That's not the only reason he died. He died so that he could pay the penalty for all the ways we fall short because we're not going to be perfect servants so that we can be totally forgiven for every way in which we fail to live up to his example so in calling us to be servants he's made a way for us to be forgiven when we fail that's how extravagantly generous he is even when he adjusts us it was in this awkward context of adjusting the disciples' self-centeredness and earthly-mindedness that Jesus graciously repeated his plan to provide the most amazing demonstration of extravagant generosity that the world had ever seen. The Son of God would give his life for a proud and rebellious people so that we could be forgiven and reunited with our Father God. Right between Jesus' response to a proud Peter and his response to a proud James and John Jesus lovingly explained to his disciples for the third time, this is what's going to happen in Jerusalem. I'm going to die for you, but I'm going to be raised on the third day. Now, Matthew was a very clever writer. Of course he was, because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And after telling his readers the story of how amazingly... Slow the disciples were to recognize the truths about Jesus and the kingdom after telling all these stories about how flawed they were. I believe it's no coincidence that Matthew then tells the simple story of two blind men who hear of Jesus passing on his way to die and be raised up in Jerusalem. Let's read the final six verses of Matthew 20. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. And followed him. I believe that Matthew intentionally included this story right after what we've just read because he intended this story to be a living parable of how the 12 disciples needed their eyes opened. Matthew goes from speaking about James and John's spiritual blindness to these two other men's physical blindness. Matthew is the only writer to mention that there were two blind men. This story is told elsewhere, but it's always about blind Bartimaeus. There were two men that the other gospel writers, they don't mention the other. But here we have a a contrast between these two men who have just asked for the best seats in the kingdom and these two other men who are quite different. And in verse 32, Matthew described Jesus' abrupt response to the two blind beggars. It says, Jesus, stop. Now, I don't know how much significance Matthew put on those two words, but they're powerful words. The words Jesus stopped caused me to wonder at what it means for the Son of God who was on his way to Jerusalem to accomplish God's awesome, long-promised, epic plan for saving the human race from the consequences of sin to suddenly stop in his tracks. What would he stop for? What stopped Jesus from continuing such an infinitely important journey? Well, the fact is, Jesus stopped for what people around him found annoying. A couple of blind beggars shouting for Jesus to have mercy on them, with the people around them rebuking them, telling them to shut up. But they persisted, and that caused Jesus to stop. Jesus could have stopped the first time they called out. Jesus didn't stop the first time. He kept walking. He stopped when they persisted. He walked on until their determination was obvious. And then he stopped. Stopped to talk to two poor blind beggars who seemed able to see more clearly than Jesus' 12 disciples. Having stopped, he asked them the strangest question to two men who were obviously blind. He said, what do you want me to do for you? Why ask a question of men that you can see are blind? It's obvious they want their sight. But Jesus seemed to love hearing expressions of, of, of faith. This is a lesson to us in the area of prayer. God knows what we need. And we know that he knows what we need. But he still wants us to ask. He wants to hear expressions of faith. For upon hearing them ask for their sight to be restored, Jesus immediately opened their eyes. Faith was persistently expressed, and that persistence caused Jesus to stop and pay attention to two men that no one else thought mattered. Yet these two simple beggars knew something profound. They knew the right thing to ask the Son of David. Peter asked, what what are we going to get for our sacrifices? James and John said, can we sit behind you in the kingdom? But these two blind beggars, they asked, Lord, have mercy on us. That is the prayer Jesus wants to answer for each one of us in this room, whatever we're going through, when we cry out to him from a place of worship and humble surrender. These men would have been considered last in their society, but Jesus He stopped because he considered them first and an example to all of us. So in closing, I want to ask you something and ask myself as well. How much do we listen to the devil who is called the accuser of the brethren as he accuses us day after day regarding our repeated failures compared to how much we listen to the Son of God as he addresses us as flawed And proud and self seeking people, but he tells us about how he died for us so that he could forgive us, so that he could employ us and generously reward us. Who are we listening to? This extravagantly generous God who adjusts us to just follow his example and forgives us when we fail, or to the devil who accuses us? Tries to tell us we're a write off when we fail. Tries to tell us that we're no good when we fail, even though God has good plans for us. Clearly, Matthew wanted his readers to hear and see Jesus' love in this story, in all these stories. What a God we serve who treats us as we don't deserve. He sees us as who we are, with every hidden and motive every hidden motive, and every bad attitude revealed. And then he responds to us with unrestrained, loving generosity that flies in the face of what we deserve and then calls us to what we could could never achieve without him. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And it is true for everyone who loves and follows Jesus to this very day. Amen.